As I uh, come among you this morning, I'd like to uh, begin by just saying that we'll be, over the next several weeks, we'll be going back to the basics. Uh, back to the basics, not because I think you're uninstructed in the basics or you need me to fill in the gaps or set you straight uh, in, in that particular area. Going back to the basics is, is just good practice, something we need to do fairly regularly. Going back to the basics is important in times of, times of change, times of uncertainty, times of crisis, times when you, when you just have a sense of being stuck. Going back to the basics is, is important in church and, and in almost uh, all human endeavors. People are always going back to the basics. And when you go back to the basics, uh, ordinarily you discover again what it is that's most important and what it is that brought you uh, here to begin with. When you're heading out on a new journey, it's important to go back to the basics to get your bearings. So we'll be going back to the basics for a, a few weeks. I hope maybe it will help you uh, as I come among you for a few uh, for a relatively short time uh, to at least get a clue about where I'm coming from. It might help you understand me a little better than it might be otherwise, a little easier than it might be otherwise. But um, I want to go back to the basics just so that uh, as we enter into this time of transition, we may be encouraged and we may, uh, as it were, gain our bearings to approach this time of change. Going back to the basics, in, certainly in North American Christianity, would take us into a consideration of discipleship. Uh, and I won't be, I'll be speaking about discipleship this morning, but I'm not going to be talking about the practice of discipleship. I'll be talking about the practice or the, uh, the concept, the, the global understanding of discipleship as a way of thinking about the Christian life. Just about every church in North America, no matter what flavor, what stripe, has something in its life that would be called discipleship. And if we were pressed to offer a simple explanation of discipleship, it's likely uh, that no one would push back if I described discipleship as the enterprise by which people learn to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. That uh, If my sermon this morning has an official title, it would be Following Jesus. Uh, in 1937, the German pastor and theologian uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a, a little book which we know in the English-speaking world as The Cost of Discipleship. It's a book about discipleship, and it's been tremendously influential. If you haven't read it, uh, I would encourage you to at least take a stab. It's, uh, it, it can be rough going in some places, but if you, if you put in the effort, it's uh, really a treasure. But when Bonhoeffer published the book in, in Germany in uh, 1937, of course, that was about seven years before he would be executed by the Nazis and would, would pay the price of, of discipleship. But when he published it first in Germany, the title of the book in German is not The Cost of Discipleship. The title of this book in German is just the German word meaning following so discipleship is about following. Discipleship is following Jesus. Why is that so? 
Why do we make such a big deal about discipleship? Ultimately, it's because we would understand the stories about the disciples in the Gospels, about those who follow Jesus as normative, as the, the gold standard, if you will, for understanding what it means to be a Christian. And so discipleship lies at the, the heart of the enterprise of the church. That's what the first Christians did. That's what the first people to be caught up in the, the, the uh, Christian movement did. Before it was called the Christian movement, they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. And they followed Jesus because of his preaching of the kingdom of God. It wasn't that Jesus was just a charismatic person and people were looking for someone to follow. What resonated with them was that Jesus, like John the Baptist before him, announced that the kingdom of God was at hand. They were looking for the kingdom of God. They were longing for the kingdom of God. What Jesus said filled them with hope and longing and anticipation and confidence, not just because of his wisdom, but because they realized that in him, the kingdom of God was going to be brought to bear. So as we go back to the basics, I want you to think with me about following Jesus and the way that this compels us to be clear about our calling in the light of our vision and longing for the kingdom of God. This morning I want us to look at a brief passage in the gospel according to Luke in which the relationship between following Jesus and the kingdom of God is uh, right out there, uh, pretty transparent. Moreover, in these verses, there is a, a kind of open-endedness that uh, provide an, a, a way for us to wrestle with it for ourselves. So uh, if you would follow with me as we hear the reading of God's word, Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he, that is Jesus, said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first Say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. To his name be glory and praise. In just a moment, I'll, I'll walk us through each of these individual conversations that Jesus has, these three conversations. But before I do that, I'd like to make just a few very general observations, some that I'm sure you've already made, but the first is that each one of these three conversations is about following. There are two conversations where someone initiates it. I will follow you, I will follow you. There's another conversation where Jesus initiates it by saying, follow me, but they're all about following. The second is to point out that these exchanges are about the kingdom, or that the kingdom of God is in view, very expressly so, in the second and third. The second potential disciple is told to go preach the kingdom. And the third potential disciple is invited to consider 
whether he is really cut out for the kingdom. And then uh, another general observation, I've already mentioned this, but note uh, that unlike a lot of conversations about following Jesus that we find in the Gospels, these are open-ended. And by that I mean we don't know how they turn out. Uh, we know how it turns out with Peter and Andrew and James and John and, and Levi, and we know how it turns out with the rich young ruler. Jesus says, go sell all you have and uh, come and follow me. We know, how, we know how those work out. These conversations, we don't know. All Luke wants us to, to see and to focus on is the exchange. And, and since we don't know how it works out with them, the point of that is uh, the only thing that we can know is, I wonder how this conversation would work out with you. I wonder how this would work out with me. So in a way, it's kind of a, it's kind of a hook to get us to think about what it would mean for us to follow Jesus. And the last, uh, last observation that I'm sure you have made, if, even if you haven't articulated it, uh, is that these are difficult. These three conversations are very difficult. We might even speak of them as problem texts because they are hard to hear. They're hard to hear. Our, I expect that at some level our initial response, even though we may have heard these countless times, our initial response is something like this. Surely Jesus is not that demanding. Surely Jesus does not expect that kind of immediate, unqualified obedience. Surely Jesus would not tell anyone to let the dead bury the dead. Surely Jesus would not prevent uh, a willing person, a willing disciple from going to say goodbye to his family. That just seems uncaring. That just seems over the top. That doesn't seem like, well, it just doesn't seem like the Jesus that we've invited into our hearts or something like that, does it? And there are a lot of strategies out there to take the edge off of Jesus' words. The most common being that, well, you know, Jesus, uh, Jesus was God after all. And he knew exactly what was going on in, in the hearts of each of these three individuals. And even though what he says seems a little bit uh, difficult, it was just for them. Because he was zeroing in on the problem that that particular person had. And, and though it seems hard, it they needed to hear a, a word that would, so, would, would convict them of the, this area of spiritual weakness or deficiency. So it was... Yeah, he said those, but, but it's not for us. <laughs> Is that, unless, of course, that happens to be my problem, and then maybe it's for me. But generally speaking, uh, Jesus is ordinarily not this demanding. And all I will say is that that uh, strikes me as well-intentioned, but profoundly misguided. I think that misses the point entirely. So let's, let's look uh, at each of these three exchanges. The first one, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. This is clearly, this is clearly the only appropriate way to offer to follow Jesus. 
If you're going to offer to follow Jesus, the only appropriate way to offer to follow Jesus is, Lord, I will follow you anywhere. If we were to offer anything less, on reflection, it would sound shallow. Knowing what we know about Christ, remembering that he is our creator and our redeemer, the king of kings, the one who became poor so that we might become rich, the one who poured out his life for us, uh, the one who gave his all for us, it would, be, it, would be, uh, it would just be embarrassing to offer Jesus anything less than uh, wherever you go, I will go. It would be embarrassing to say, Lord, I will follow you anywhere provided that, that they speak English there and I don't have to eat anything that's still moving. It would, it would be embarrassing. It would be, even though inwardly we might be thinking, I hope that I won't have to go anywhere that would take me out of my comfort zone and disrupt my life, we would be ashamed openly to offer Jesus limited obedience, to say, to say I'll follow you so far and no farther. The offer of this first speaker is the only way to offer to follow Jesus. But Jesus, in his reply about the foxes and the birds and the Son of Man having nowhere to lay his head, is meant that there is more to consider, more to appreciate, more to understand. Note that Jesus does not say to the man, you can't follow me. A lot of people look at these texts and they, the, the impression is given that at least the first and third speakers uh, they're sort of would-be disciples, and that, that Jesus' reply is, is meant to dismiss them. You know, it's, it's like, you know, sorry, next candidate. But that's not what the text says. Jesus says to the man, there's, there's something else you need to consider. He doesn't say you can't follow me. He says you don't fully understand what you may be committing yourself to, and really, ultimately, you are not capable of making this kind of commitment. You're not capable of following through on this kind of commitment. Your good intentions, in other words, are not enough to qualify you as a disciple. And he's not faulting him for good, in, good intentions. He's just saying his intentions won't carry him through. And the key, the key is to appreciate the contrast between anywhere, I will follow you anywhere, and Jesus replied, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. That's what Luke wants us to, to zero in on or to, or to appreciate. In, the, in our own strength, no one of us is able to bridge the gap between anywhere and nowhere. The problem isn't that this, this particular person's uh, issue is that, that he, he's only willing to, to go if, if there's a Sheraton there to stay in. That's not his problem. Jesus is speaking to something that we all have to wrestle with. The, 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 the gulf between anywhere and nowhere. Uh, one of the things I've been wrestling with since the 2018 uh, EPC General Assembly in Denver uh, is the challenge that Andrew Brunson gave to us. Andrew Brunson had been in, in, is an EPC pastor who had been in prison in Turkey for quite a, an extended period of time. 
and was released uh, not too long before the General Assembly. But he spoke to the Assembly and, and opened his heart in a very compelling way about how he thought he was prepared for persecution. And his challenge to us was that we need to be, to, to be doing more to prepare ourselves and our own people to, to confront persecution. But he said, you know, I was, I was an American pastor leading congregations, Christian congregations, openly Christian congregations in Turkey. And he said that in and of itself was enough to, to make me aware that there were people out there who, were, who would like to kill me. And that, uh, that death for doing this was a very real possibility. And he said, I came to terms with that. And he said, you know, I went there and I said, Lord, I'm, and he said, uh, Lord, uh, I'm prepared to die to, to do this ministry, if that's what you call of me. But he said, what I did not know that was that I was not prepared to deal with imprisonment. And that in prison, he broke and he found himself in a crisis of faith. And this is the force of what we are to think about when Jesus says, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The offer to follow Jesus anywhere is not an offer that we are capable of making or carrying through because we do not know the full abandonment of being nowhere, even if it is being nowhere with Jesus. We do not know the limitations of our own spiritual strength. So if we follow Jesus anywhere, the only thing that we can be sure of is that Jesus will be there with us and the question becomes, will that be enough to get me going on the first step to following Jesus? To know that he will be with me and that that's the only certainty that I am promised. Let's jump to the, the uh, third conversation. I'm taking these out of order because the, uh, I want to see another volunteer. Here we have another uh, apparent volunteer. And he, his words are about um, the home, the, the family. I've, I've, I've mentioned that, that this may be a, an apparent volunteer, but maybe the Lord has called him and Luke is just picking up on Jesus' response. It doesn't matter. Just look at the text. Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me say farewell to the folks at home. And Jesus' response is pretty hard. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Notice again that Jesus does not say to this person, go home, reject, I don't want you. He gives him something to think about. He, he clarifies for this person the, the nature of discipleship. And it sounds hard, not fit. If, if that's the way you see the matter, uh, you're not cut out for this. Joining, joining in God's great enterprise to uh, renew all things, joining God's great enterprise to set the world to rights, I'm sorry. Sorry. It, it appears to me that at least at present, you're not cut out for this. And so he clarifies. He clarifies what, what's at stake. What is it that Jesus clarifies? Simply this. 
that the disciple does not negotiate with the master over the terms of discipleship. Jesus' lordship is ultimate. One does not enter the path of discipleship by setting conditions with Jesus, no matter how commendable and upright and uh, fitting the proposed condition may appear. After, after all, Jesus, Jesus is pro-family. But the greater issue is, who is the master and who is the follower? Once that's clear, everything else falls into place. Well, let's return then uh, to the middle, to the second conversation. This person does not appear to be a volunteer. At least in the text, he's not presented as a volunteer. And we can notice that this person, like the last person, also has a, a but first. To another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This person's zeal to follow is, at best, sketchy. He does not say, I will follow, but first. He only says, uh, but first. Perhaps that implies a degree of willingness, I don't know. Jesus, Jesus is, does not make any suggestions to this man uh, about whether he may or may not be fit for the kingdom. He does not overtly try to clarify this man's understanding about the nature of the kingdom, though I think he does indirectly. But quite remarkably, and in striking contrast to the first and the third, Jesus simply commands him to set his objections aside and go. The man says, I have to go and bury my father. And Jesus' response, though it strikes us as a very, uh, you know, this is a hard word, uh, the essence of Jesus' response is, never mind about that. Never mind about that. I know you think you are not ready. I know you think this is not the time. Never mind. Follow me anyway. And of, of course, here in Luke, he does not, saw, he does not say, follow me anyway. Uh, that's, that's, what, uh, that's what's recorded in Matthew's parallel account of this but in Luke it's uh, it's expanded if you will he does not say follow me anyway but that's implied what he says is go preach the kingdom and we just need to notice in passing that uh, this is always the implication of being called to follow so you are uh, your life is turned upside down you are you are taken out of your own life your old life uh, the, openings, the opening song about being called out of, uh, out of the grave of our life without Christ into his resurrection life. It's the same kind of idea. You are, you are called out of your old, old life into a, a new life with Jesus, uh, to be with Jesus, but ultimately to be sent out by Jesus for the sake of the kingdom. To, bring, uh, to, be, uh, to enter into to the, the fellowship of those who are called to participate in God's setting all things right in the world. We can say of the first and third potential followers that they had good intentions. 
This fellow's intentions are not clearly expressed, but Jesus calls him. Jesus presses him with the call. The call stands over and above his reservations. The point, the point to take to heart here is to understand grace. When we become followers of Jesus, it is because Jesus takes the initiative. We become followers because he calls us. He calls us, and this is what brings us forth. This is what takes us out of our old life into the life of the kingdom. He calls us, and this brings us to the place where we can embrace the kingdom of God. Now, there's a, a much more challenging question that's off stage, as it were, uh, in the background, uh, a question that's uh, behind this text and, and all of the gospel texts as far as discipleship is concerned, and I would call that the challenge of uniqueness. We, we acknowledged at the outset that the, the experience of the first disciples, if, if we call uh, the heart of the Christian life discipleship, then the experience of the first disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John, all the ones that we know by name and the ones that we don't know by name who walked with Jesus, their experience was unique and not to be repeated. And yet we say, this is normative. This is the gold standard. The problem is that it's unique and it can't be repeated by us. None of us can go back and walk the dusty roads of Palestine with Jesus. And we may think in our hearts, well, if I could do that, it would be a lot simpler. Not that, the, not that the call would be more difficult or that the challenge would be easier, but I would at least know what to do. Because then when Jesus said, follow me, it was, it was clear what you were supposed to do. You, you quit fishing or you quit tax collecting or you quit just hanging out and you, you walked with Jesus and the disciple band on the road wherever he was going. We cannot do that. Today it's not like that and because of that, we have a tendency to say, well, those are great stories. That's, that's what, those are the kind of folk that we come from spiritually. But we tend to reduce it as an ideal. Because we cannot go back and do it in the same way, we tend to say, well, um, they're inspiring, they present an ideal, but that's no longer possible or practical and ultimately really can't function normatively for us. But the first disciples who heard the call and walked the dusty roads, uh, by God's grace, wrote their stories down for us so that we can understand what discipleship is, not so much in terms of what it looks like outwardly in a particular time, but what it's like in the heart, what it takes in here and what the call of Jesus does inside. It's as if they are saying to us, we know that you cannot go back and follow Jesus in exactly the same way that we did. But, you know, their story is, that's, the, the gospel does not end with uh, the call, follow me. Uh, at least as we read it in Luke this morning. The gospels end with Jesus being crucified, put in the grave, and rising again. So that the people who share the stories about following Jesus want us to know that Jesus is still alive. And that by his word and spirit, he still walks through 
villages and, and towns and cities and even whole countries and calls people to follow him and to embrace the kingdom, which is forgiveness of sins and everlasting life and the beginning of a new creation. I'll close by sharing some words from uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer from The Cost of Discipleship. Remember, he's, he's writing pastorally. And his uh, pastoral applications are very down-to-earth. You know, we, we read the stories about people uh, le you know, leaving without saying goodbye to their families or leaving their uh, dying loved ones to, to go follow Jesus. But he just, he, he brings it down to the, the matter of responding to the call and what that looks like in the ordinary circumstances of life. For example, you may know, you may know that, for, ex for example, there's someone in the body of Christ that you're on the outs with. You've fallen out and you know you need to go and, and try to make that right. But you just think, now is not the time. I'm just not ready to do that. Jesus take, or Bonhoeffer takes the, the narratives about the, the call, follow me now, no but first, and he turns that into pastoral guidance. And he does so with one of the most famous uh, things from the cost of discipleship, and that's the paradox about uh, believing and obeying. And the paradox goes like this, only those who obey believe. And only those who believe obey. Sounds a little bit like the chicken and the egg, but it's, it's really far more significant. And here's how Bonhoeffer applies the paradox, and this is how I will end the message. I'm not going to sew it up in, into some neat and tidy conclusion. I'm just going to share this with you and urge you to, to ponder his application of only those who obey believe and only those who believe obey. Here's what he writes. If you believe... Take the first step. It leads to Jesus. If you don't believe, take the first step all the same, for you are bidden to take it. No one wants to know about your faith or unbelief. Your orders are to perform the act of obedience on the spot. And then you will find yourself in the situation where faith becomes possible and where faith exists in the true sense of the word. Amen. Lord, write these words on our hearts. Uh, grant that by your spirit we may hear your call again, that we be, may be inspired and amazed by your grace in enabling us to hear your voice and drawing us into your great work of putting everything right in the world. I pray that you would uh, work in us so that this may be a living word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.